One of the things too is usually if you're like pretty quiet, your gut will tell you the right thing to do. And it's better to follow your gut and take a chance of being wrong than to ignore it and then be wrong. You'll regret the latter way more. Welcome to Open, Honest, and Direct, a podcast sharing stories from powerful leaders on what it takes to unlock your team's potential. Each episode, we'll take a behind-the-scenes look at how to build a high-performing team from the leaders who built them. Today, we're lucky to have Corbett Drummy, the co-founder and CEO of Popular Pays, a content-sharing platform that helps brands generate content to tell their story through influencer marketing and also to amplify top-performing content with their paid spend. Corbett shares how finding a problem you find worth it to solve, reading a lot, and listening to others along the way were keys to helping him evolve popular pays in the company it's become today. Corbett, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for taking the time on your busy Monday to share a little bit about your story and what brought you here. You bet. As I was doing some research and looking up at you and looking up a popular pays and what you all do, what I was most interested in is what were you doing before popular pays? And when I ask that, I mean, like, even before your thing before that, like, what were you doing yeah. as a kid? Yeah, I guess like the stages before pop pays were immediately beforehand was Leo Burnett, an ad agency. Before that, I was at the College of William and Mary, and I was even working on a startup there. And then, yeah, if you want to go back even farther, we could yeah, take us going. all the way back. Take, yeah. us, take <laughs> us back to like you as a teenager, you as a kid. Like, I'm always interested in what an entrepreneur was like as a kid. Yeah, um, that's what a good were you question. interested in? Yeah, most of the times I talk about pop pays. If I do go back at all, the kind of the thread of pop pays started in college. So it's interesting to talk about it even before that because it was a little bit of a different tact. In high school, I would say I had a broad variety of interests and not really specialized in one. So I played tons of sports and I tried a bunch of hobbies. I thought I would be a soccer player or a musician or things like that. And indeed, when I went to school, went to college, I originally thought I was going to be a music major. With either tact I took, I brought a lot of intensity to it, but things evolved in college to kind of point me in the direction of starting a business, but I wasn't pointed there from the beginning. Yeah. How'd you go from music major mm -hmm. to starting a business? It seemed yeah. like very different. You know, starting out in college, you take a bunch of classes to figure out what you want to do. I hadn't really found what that was yet, but I ended up moving in with some people and we were in a band together and played music, you know, in our spare time. And I always liked whatever project I had. I tried to involve that in my coursework, like make my own independent study or something like that. So originally I proposed making a independent study to market our own band. And so I was going to try to get class credit for like running a band basically. <laughs> and I had some traction there. I think I was going to be able to do it. One thing led to another though, like we started to like drift apart a little bit. And so I ended up changing my independent study at the time, I applied to business school because it was like the applications were closing. I had to pick somewhere. And I originally applied with the intent of like, oh, I'd market my own band. My dad actually kind of was the inspiration there because he said Mick Jagger went to the London School of Economics and that kind of sealed the deal for me. Yeah. Mick, Mick Jagger <laughs> is your access to entrepreneurship. Who would have thought? Yeah, he's the unlikely role model. Well, I, I believe I said I'm going to be a music major. And I think like my mom and my dad said no. And, <laughs> and so then my dad, clever salesman that he is, he, he said, yeah, you know, Mick went to London School of Economics. You, know, you can play music on your own and be creative on your own, but 
the business school just opened. You should apply there and learn how to run the business of it. And that was cool. So like throughout the course of starting at the business school, the one class I took that was really different and I liked it was um, intro to entrepreneurship. There was only literally one assignment all year and that was just make a business plan. And that was really cool. At the end, there was a competition. And so a few of my friends and I, I'd already kind of like was dabbling in a business with them. And we decided like, we actually make the business. We have a better chance of winning the competition. And so we just started a business there. This is all right. So if you want to go to like how crazy intertwined these things are, when I was living with this band, I was watching my roommate buy and sell tickets. He just would buy tickets to the concerts you want to go to. And if you didn't go, he just sell them and he ended up making a lot of money. And so I wanted to do that. I didn't have any money though. So I went to these kids that were my group at school and I borrowed money from them, basically like a couple thousand dollars. And I was like scalping tickets. Like that was the, I guess the first venture. Slow down. What friends are just going to give you a couple thousand dollars? Like, how did you, how were you able to convince them? Hey guys, I got an idea. Give me a couple thousand dollars. Cause in college, a couple thousand dollars. Oh, it's a lot of money. Yeah. A lot of money. It's a ton of money. So I remember like, I I made these little like investment reports and they watched me like a hawk to make sure I wasn't embezzling it. One of the kids gave me a thousand bucks, which was like so much money at the time. I mean, I barely had 50 bucks for groceries. So yeah, but I mean, we made over a course of three months, I think I like doubled the money. The reason we stopped, it was making money, but we weren't really building anything. And when we couldn't apply to the business school thing with like a ticket scalping method, definitely against like the ticket master terms of service. Basically, we took those funds, just put it in a bank account and then launched a business. And that one was much more straightforward. It was just a tutor matching startup where we connected college students who wanted to tutor with kids in the area that needed tutoring. That was dead simple. That's simple. You said it worked. What do you mean by it worked? Yeah, like, because the business model is pretty straightforward and it was easy to recruit the college kids that needed money because everyone needed money. And then to get the students and we'd pass out flyers or we ran like Google AdWords campaigns, you know, targeted. And so it was pretty easy to acquire both sides of the market. And it was definitely a marketplace startup. And that was also our first foray into like software development where none of us were technical. So I ended up hiring a software engineer just to like build a site for us. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about like how not to do software. <laughs> I vividly remember though, it was a business. We ended up all kind of splitting up and chickening out instead of quitting to run it. But I actually got my first internship tangentially because I was working at a coffee shop at the time, like on the startup, and I bumped into a recruiter, basically. Uh, Columbus Day has a special day in my heart. You know, I was working at this coffee shop on this startup, and like a dozen kids or two dozen kids in suits walked in, and they were listening to this woman present, who was clearly important. And she was from Leo Burnett, this ad agency recruiting students on campus. And I was being a smart ass, and like when she finished, she's like, any questions? And I was like, what's your policy on Columbus Day? I thought I was being really funny. And I asked her that. And at the end of the presentation, she came up and we talked. I don't know exactly when it was, but I remember Columbus Day was probably coming up. So I asked about it as a joke. (laughs) Wow, that is crazy. And so you had these two businesses. One led directly into your internship, which led directly into you at Leo Burnett. How did those projects influence the way in which you thought about starting Pop Pays? And this actually underlines the importance of having like a mentor and a community because the thing about when we started this business at William and Mary was there was just no infrastructure there. Um, I love the school and it's, I'm sure it's gotten even better. Like every market's gotten more and more friendly to startups and wise to that, especially in the last 10 years, but we didn't know what we were doing at all. And the depth and thinking that we approached our idea with in college versus, you know, when I was at Leo Burnett, the ad agency and quit with a friend of mine, it was radically different. If we had just quickly pursued the tutoring startup, it would have been a bootstrapped and profitable company, but it would not have grown. You know, I was like reading stuff from like Y Combinator at the time, but, uh, and I, I probably wanted to apply to Y Combinator, but 
we just didn't know anything about startups and it, it would have probably gotten stuck or fallen apart with the infrastructure that we found later. It was a whole different, more mature way of approaching the business where we were thinking about just agile development, growth, like how you fund it and all these things where we just were striking out blind. I sometimes say, I think we were like the first startup out of William Mary since Thomas Jefferson. Like I, <laughs> I don't know any others that were like around there at the time. And so you say you had these different tools that you use to start pop pages. Yeah. What were some of those tools and how did you um, find them? The internet's definitely like level the playing field. I got way more into like reading essays from Paul Graham, like YC put a lot of their stuff online about how to approach running a startup. And I just read a lot more. Can I pause for a second? Cause yeah. you've mentioned Y Combinator a couple of times. And for those of you who are listening, Y Combinator is probably the best known incubator and they're in Silicon Valley. And so they do a great job of incubating, but also giving information and education around starting businesses. So you read a lot about them and through what they did. What were some of the other more influential things that helped you model oh, out how you wanted to build the business? I mean, and that's why it kind of comes back to your book, which is like information is like a diet and you can read an article online. Well, I mean, Instagram is probably junk food and like stuff you'll find on Reddit is like junk food. Podcasts and um, articles are fairly healthy, but at the end of the day, like a book is like green leafy vegetables for your brain where it's the most thought out concepts that goes the deepest. It takes focus to digest, but it's like really pure. I probably listen to on Audible book every two weeks, I'd say. And I don't really have much time for reading. I only read for like 10 minutes before bed, but over time those just started to really stack up. And it's hard to name which books in particular, they've all affected me at different moments in my career. But at that stage, it was mostly essays online from Paul Graham. I got progressively more and more into reading like startup books after that. But then I started to understand like the mainstream methodology around like raising on convertible notes and stuff like that. Like, And I think that's something that's really important. You hear that in a lot of successful entrepreneurs is they absorb a bunch of information. And that's something that, you know, I remember I did before I started my business too. People mm -hmm. like, what'd you do? I go, I went to a lot of talks, listened to a lot of podcasts, read a lot of books as much as I could to absorb and then get some best bets out of that. Yeah. Okay. So you absorbed a bunch of information, you and your co-founder mm -hmm. then decide to co-found PopPays. What inspired that? What, what was behind that? If you, know, if you want to start your own business, it takes just like a drive and like a willingness to just always want to strike out and do something. And we always were working on ideas outside of Leo Burnett. Some of them involved Burnett. It might've been things we were pitching our clients there, but my co-founder had a list of 20 ideas and we pursued a few of them. Pop Hayes was like just one of those, but, um, oh, he, we, so we this actually, wasn't like, it wasn't like, oh, here's the, here's no, the golden yeah, ticket. Yeah. Yeah. You had 20 some odd ideas. And you know, it's actually really common where actually at least all the ones I've been a part of the team is together before the idea. It's very possible to be the other way around, but to talk about like another book, there's a book called Founders at Work and a few of those co-founding teams, quite a few, they'd have like people they want to work with first and then they get the idea. Sometimes they're just brainstorming together. Sometimes it falls in their lap, but it's really common. I've heard other people say like, get the right people on the bus first before driving. Pop Pays was just easy to start and it had some early traction. So Nowadays, I would give advice like orient around a really difficult problem because, you know, sometimes that's actually like almost easier to dig into because there's few people doing it. A lot of folks have talked about this, like Sam Altman or Peter Thiel, but for really difficult problems, you can attract really smart people because they want to work on difficult things. And there's often like a lot of people that want to help you along the way. So if you're solving something really challenging, you can kind of amass more resources and it feels good. You're going to be spending so much of your time on it that it feels good to be working on something super important. But at the time, um, my co-founder and I, we had very little time and we just were trying to get things started and like test and learn basically. 
Did you test all 20 ideas? No, we probably only got to like, we didn't get very far. And some of them were just like fun. And this one didn't start out as a business. I think you need a good like dynamic between your early team, like complementary skill sets. It started as, you know, my co-founder was just at a party. We had a party at our house and he was probably slightly drunk. And he was just saying like, we should have a party that you need 500 followers to get into. And um, he originally, we were talking about it in the context of like one of our brands. We could pitch one of our brands at Burnett on an idea where you get carded at the door to see if you're 21 and then get carded to see if you have enough followers. And we thought it was neat because Instagram was so new at the time. We just thought it'd be neat to bring in people that have like a lot of Instagram followers, which at the time, 500 was a fair amount because it just started. And, That's um, crazy to yeah, think about yeah. now. I know. And I mean, back then, you know, there's only a few people that had thousands of followers, but it turned into something more than that because, you know, it slowly evolved into a platform where you get free gifts in exchange for posting about it, like a free cup of coffee or shirt or something like that. You know, you have to let your idea evolve and it evolved into this platform. And so you realized it was a problem. And because it was a somewhat complex problem, you, you started to get traction pretty quickly. Yeah, it was, um, you know, it's interesting. The first problem that we were solving was at the time it, you couldn't get your brand on Instagram, but what it kind of morphed into is we were working at this ad agency and we were living in a world where brands needed just like a couple of commercials per year. And we realized we were moving into a world where now brands need, you know, 4,000 pieces of content a year. And so like the content crisis itself became really apparent. And so we stumbled into it basically, which, but then we kind of realized, man, it's so hard to scale content on social, but you know, who's really good at it, content creators. Like if you give an influencer a free product or give a creator a, a brief and some money and ask them to shoot, they can crank out really great native and organic content at a price point that is unbeatable from an agency point of view. Huh. I mean, it seems like over the years you've been able to gain fairly decent traction in solving that problem. How have you been able to manage the scaling of solving that problem and scaling of a business at the same time? Because those are mm. two separate problems. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. I've heard people say that there's like multiple stages of a company where in the beginning, you're just solving a problem and building a product. And then at some point, you switch towards building a company. And so like you're focusing on building the company that builds the product. And I don't know exactly what point it switches, but the work's been different I've heard another rule of thumb, like every three in 10. Uh, so for example, we started with three co-founders, myself, Alan Holmes, Nathan Michael, and you end up like with a team of, you know, seven to 10 people. And so it goes from like three to 10 and then going from 10 to 30 is another step function where now you have departments. And I think really that's the company building phase where, you know, when you're 10 people, like seven to 10 people, you're still focusing on, are we really solving a problem? And like, you're kind of an organization in search of a business model. And then when you're really at that 30 stage, especially going from 30 to 100, you're in that scaling phase. When you're going to 30, you're building out the first like processes and like hiring becomes something that you're doing regularly versus just like sporadically. And, but then when you're going from 30 to 100, which we're in the process of now, yeah, you're focused on scale, the economics of the situation, you know, how much can I sell or bring in on average and what's your cost of customer acquisition and retention numbers and all these things. Because I think a lot of listeners here can really identify with that problem of 10 to 30, mm -hmm. 30 to 100. What are some of the lessons that you've learned, maybe some that have worked and some that backfired in this growth from 10 to 45 as you're, as you're anticipating this next? Yeah. Wow. I mean, where to begin? Let's see. <laughs> um, I'd say in that like three person stage, it's just critically important to pick your team wisely, like your starting team wisely. Ideally, it's interesting. YC says that they really like people who have experience working together in the past. 
And so I would say like, you know, choose your co-founders carefully. Those accelerators do help. I think it gives you structure. But then after that, like from that, like three to 10 stage, it's your job as a founder to do those initial roles and learn them and until you can hire someone that's better than you uh, at that role. Um, so you'll be a jack of all trades, master of none. That's actually kind of helpful as a CEO because <laughs> you have to learn a lot of things, but you know, your goal is to not really own that department. You want someone else to end up owning it. One important thing is just talk to your users, just really relentlessly focus on like what activities generate growth and try to set a growth goal and, and try to be like religious about hitting that goal and like developing growth methods for sustained long-term growth. But then you got to find something that you can continually grow from slow and steady beats like boom and bust every day. And so you found product market fit. And so what are the parts of the business that you're focusing on today? Yeah. After finding product market fit. And, you know, as you mentioned, and no, it's, it's an awesome question. And what's so interesting about the startup environment today is that I think product market fit, it really has to be continually figured out like almost every year or two because this space is moving so fast. Mm. Um, and so you face this continual challenge of having to disrupt yourself or else you'll be disrupted. And th this is shown in pop pays in a few ways, which is when we first started, we were taking this marketplace approach of like connecting brands. And now it's funny, so many people are working with content creators and doing influencer marketing that we've evolved again. And we're selling SaaS now for a lot of our new conversations. So we've evolved and now like we're pushing a lot of our customers over to SaaS now, which is really interesting. It's a whole new transition. Huh, that's really interesting. And so, you know, one of the things I'm taking away from that is what you basically said is we need to constantly evolve. Mm -hmm. And so where you're focusing is as you continue to grow, you're not getting satisfied with product market fit today, realizing yeah. that product market fit tomorrow is gonna have to be different. So thinking about that. yeah. That, that's kind of like really high level strategy. Where does this business need to go in the next three-ish years or two to three years? Because it needs to continue to pivot. What are the other things that you are spending your time doing then? But through the company's life cycle, I would say there's like some distinct moments where, you know, for example, you're either fundraising or you're not. And if you are, it takes up like most of your time. And then if you aren't fundraising, a lot of time you're deploying that capital and you're hiring aggressively. Focusing on growth is just the most important thing because we're not here to grow just in one quarter. You know, it's not like we're after quarterly Wall Street profits. You need to grow to achieve the vision you set out to do and startups need to grow or else they kind of die. Like you have to be growing. And so we're always analyzing like, how can we unlock this next layer of growth? And for us, we want to be this operating system for content creation. Like we didn't have any software for creating content at Burnett because it was like four commercials a year for our clients. So it was email and spreadsheets. But in a world where there's 4,000 pieces of content for a single client, kind of need this software, this operating system, we keep it all together. But if every brand needs content, like they need oxygen, you know, it's for your Instagram page, for your website, all this stuff, and it's increasing to really be that OS for every brand, we've got to grow a heck of a lot. So we, we've got a lot of growth to do. After going through the pop pay site and seeing, you know, your company mission and your values pretty prominent on the website, what I was wondering is how does that come into play on a daily basis with the team and you at pop pays? Yeah. We're super lucky to start with them in the sense that I think before we even like officially started the company, one of my co-founders asked like, you know, what's our North star? Like, how do we know if we're going the right direction? I was just focused on like, how are we going to get enough money for the next three months? Who do I talk to to get some money? And he had the foresight to think through that. And so we had this North star for a long time. And this question that we ask ourselves, is it worth sharing? And that's been immensely helpful for motivationally for attracting the right talent for keeping quality high. But to us, it means like, first of all, the product was predicated on, 
you know, making content for sharing. So we also just didn't want to work at a business where the output wasn't special. You know, you have one life, so spend it on something where you're really passionate about it. So for us, it meant something deeper than like just the content itself that came out of the platform. Like, is that worth sharing? And yes, like the experience of using the product itself, some of these things like Slack, there's little pieces to it that are so good. It almost is like little art. It's really thoughtful details. And so we wanted that, but if it wasn't worth sharing or something we would pay to share, well, we won't do it if it's not worth sharing. That's been really helpful as a guiding light. And it's a North Star and it's like, sometimes you're hitting it and you're really happy with it. And sometimes it's more aspirational. And that's been a big piece of the company because it gives a deeper meaning to things and it helps like align everyone together. And it even helps if any decisions on the line, you can kind of go back to, well, what are the values? And those things are really hard in the moment. It's like, sometimes you'd really just prefer to like take this contract instead of do follow this value because you just need the money. But ultimately those are usually the things you're happiest you did. Like I remember one time, we turned down some investor money when we really needed it. And we had four months of money and we were only like seven people maybe, but it was probably one of the best things we've done just because the values didn't align there. And we probably would not have had a company. Otherwise, like those things that are really tough and it's really hard in the moment to stick with them, but they're usually the things that are worth doing. Wow. The way in which you share some of these stories makes it sound so like casually, but then you keep talking and it's like, no, it definitely hasn't been a perfect journey in the sense that there are some things we've done. I'm really grateful we stuck to it. But in other times, like some of the biggest mistakes we've made were like not sticking to it. One of the things too is usually if you're like pretty quiet, your gut will tell you the right thing to do. And it's better to follow your gut and take a chance of being wrong than to ignore it and then be wrong. You'll regret the latter way more. And then your gut kind of gets better and more calibrated over time. If you follow it, it's the yeah. times that I've ignored it that's really been bad. I love that you're like connected and willing to share that. Say like, hey, when I just actually follow my gut. And it's, what's interesting is that there's science behind it. Uh, mm. There's more nerve endings in your gut than anywhere mm. else in your body. So gut instinct is like a real thing. It's getting data from other pieces in ways that you might not be able to articulate in words, yeah. but it's giving you fairly valuable information. So like- It's tough too, because so like there, we definitely have biases and blind spots. So it's important to understand. Uh, and one of the sad things is even if you do know biases and blind spots of the human psyche, you're still very liable to fall prey to them. But it, it's good to help have a few advisors instead of having like an inch deep and a mile wide. It's good to have a few tight advisors that know your business and you establish relationships. With. What you don't want to do is, is shop around for feedback to validate something you're already going to do. And then you're just wasting time. So it's good to have some people that will give you very direct open feedback. I mean, let's talk about your book, like having really candid feedback and open honest conversations are super valuable. And it's hard to find people that will engage you with that stuff. You don't need to judge the information when it comes in. You need to get the information in first, right? It's like you're yeah. saying is be open and, and believe it when it comes in and then you can assess it against your gut and then you can assess it against your intuition and your experience and all the other variables. But first be open to the information so that you can get it and not shut down yeah. from it. I found that having that tact, it lets you listen with a bit more empathy. I'm still not a good listener. That's one of the things I really need to work on. But just starting from a place like that helps you with empathy to be open to digest it and like take their point of view when you're hearing it. Yeah. I mean, just from this short conversation with you, I've, there's some key points that I've heard, which is like one is absorb as much as you can, right? So that you can then go forward and think about what's the right strategy, which is just a really good lesson. I'm really grateful and appreciative of it. Thanks for saying that. But one quick important piece and like an antidote to that, two things like number one, there can be the trap of you want to be present, but it's a challenge to always be. But the second thing, if you're digesting tons of info, especially online versus in books, you'll get stung sometimes by like comparing yourself to the other sources that you've read. And there's always a bigger fish. You don't want to always be stuck in that mindset of pursuit because then you'll never really be happy with what you have. 
it's a definitely important thing like while consuming all this information it's really critical to remain grateful for all the good things you have because if you remember especially online you're gonna be reading a bunch of highlight reels and so always like, extract yourself and have the awareness of all the good that's in your life so you don't just um get crazy with thinking you're behind all the things you read like that's critically important too uh, I'm so glad you shared that. I mean, I think that's like the perfect cap yeah. to all this because it's it's true, right? There's always going to be someone bigger, growing their company faster, mm -hmm. making more money, whatever it is, um, working in cooler places. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's a really good reminder of appreciate what you have uh, yeah, because everybody's on a different journey. Exactly. And it's more about enjoying the journey that you're on. A good journey has progression, so you want to get better. And remember, even the really big companies, are the ones that seem like they've got it all going, everyone encounters problems. It just try to practice like gratitude as a good antidote to that. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you yeah. for sharing <laughs> thank that. You. Thank yeah. you for the time. Thanks for leaving us on gratitude to end the conversation. Today. You bet. I really just uh, appreciate it. Want to hear more great stories like this one? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. And as always, you can drop us a note at openhonestanddirect.com. Cheers and have a great day.